Oh my god, it's true. <laughs> oh you know my what? god, it's true. We should start with this. Oh, all right. Maybe keep this in. Um, I'm recording. You're recording. Oh, all right. Five, four, three, two, one. Did you see the Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast, everybody. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is the 13th of October. It is episode. I can't remember which one it was. I'm. I am destroyed. All right. Um, we might have kept it in or not. I don't know. But like, COVID has just closed. One of the greatest places in the universe. Maybe it's only known to Melbourne, but Dark Zone in Box Hill is like my childhood staple. I had like birthday parties there five years in a row. Just bit the dust because of COVID and stage four. It's episode 189. Pete, uh, you're going to have to carry me through this one because this one hurts. James has been absolutely... He's literally just received a text message from a friend right on the... Uh, when we are just about to start the show about Dark Zone. He's completely shocked. He's going to need a few seconds I also went to a, a party at Dark Zone for my footy club because I used to play footy in Box Hill. Um, and so what's the news, James? Because I know nothing about this apart from your incredibly visceral emotional reaction to <laughs> Dark Zone disappearing. Yeah, well, news is that stage four restrictions hurt businesses and you know icons in Melbourne are destroying and we need to rethink things. But it's not what people tune into this show for. I'm going to deal with that in my own time. Uh, but we do need to talk about it because we have a huge show coming up. We have Greg Sheridan, foreign editor of The Australian, on the show. He's going to be talking to us about uh, all the stuff that's been going on in state politics this week. We're also going to be talking a fair bit about the US election, Trump getting COVID, mm. second debate getting cancelled, a few other things as well. Uh, Greg's always a good interview. That's a lot of fun. And we have Dr. Bella Debrero, who is one of the authors of the IPA's new book, Climate Change and Facts 2020, now available. Go get your copy. Go to climatechangethefacts.org.au. You can buy your copy there. I got mine today. So that's all that. All right, let's start off with the state politics speak because yesterday was one of the all-time big news stories in Australia. I reckon like federal leadership spills haven't come as close to being as big a news day because the most senior public servant in in Victoria who had, had to resign over the idea that his testimony to, uh, you know, the hotel quarantine inquiry wasn't correct, but that wasn't even the biggest story of the day. No, it wasn't, James. And uh, for once, well, for the second week in a row, we won't be starting with Victoria. We're starting with New South Wales, where, of course, Gladys Berejiklian in front of ICAC yesterday. She told her colleagues, apparently, I read this in the paper this morning, that it would just be a routine appearance, nothing to report, nothing to uh, write home about. Little did she know that it, it would emerge that she had, had a close personal... Well, she knew, obviously, about that, but everyone I else found out fi- about... She figured that out. <laughs> she had a close personal relationship with MP Daryl Maguire that had lasted for five years. Now, for those that don't know, Maguire had been sacked for corruption by Berejiklian, which must have been a difficult conversation uh, to have. Um a couple of years ago for being corrupt and he's, and he's very corrupt and this ICAC is to find out if he's actually corrupt in different ways from what they originally thought that he was um, corrupt for. Now, the, uh, the commission heard... Um, Do we need to throw out a word allegedly in there? There was a lot of like pretty big statements from Pete, unless the courts actually found all that stuff. He was, he was definitely corrupt the first oh, time. Okay, this is okay. I was just, it's just like, you know what, I, I kind of like money, so I don't really want to get <laughs> sued. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, continue, uh, continue. I pe- IPA legal uh, department always sweats on a Tuesday morning. Um, anyway, so the commission heard phone taps where they discussed intimate details about his finances and lobbying for developers, um, and uh, including being paid on commissions for land de- deals. Now, Big Daryl's going to appear on Wednesday, and stay tuned for that because that is when more of this will come out. What do you think, James? 
Uh, so, well, first off, if anyone out there of our listeners was thinking of getting in a relationship with Daryl Maguire, I can assure you it's not worth it. That would be my number one tip for everyone out there right now. Uh, James yeah, has been saying is, that for the last 24 hours. I, I may have, uh, like, I've barged into my roommate's room and just said, you're not having a, <laughs> you're not having connections with Daryl Maguire in here, are we? But not the point. Huge story. Uh, and yeah, like, from none of us knowing anything about this, going Glarus Berejiklian, what a premier, the only person that's actually got COVID right in this entire country, to like position nearly untenable as of yesterday afternoon. And Sherry Markson was saying that senior liberal figures were like, she's gone. Apparently, uh, I mean, she was like the two biggest rivals, Don Perrottet and Andrew Constance, seem to, well, they are saying that they're standing by her. There's more to play out, obviously, and his evidence is going to be pretty interesting. It is such a weird thing because no one's insinuating that she did anything wrong, but it's just your close proximity to this toxic, toxic source just sort of, I don't know, it undermines your position. And the stink is going to carry with her for a very long time because it is just such an incredible lapse in judgment. Um, yeah, just absolutely blown away by the news story. Yeah, at the, at the moment, they haven't uh, found any wrongdoing or that, or that she was aware of um, corruption or she didn't, um, she didn't uh, make the, what are they called, conflict of interest announcements that she was meant to make. So that, But it is still ongoing and that could emerge. Um, obviously, at the moment, it's purely just that she had a relationship with this guy. I can tell you, like, as a Victorian, <laughs> I would find it a little bit troubling if she had to go for this and we still have our Premier uh, doing what's happening here in Victoria. Um, if it turns out that she hasn't actually done anything wrong, it's just that she was in a relationship with this guy who's corrupt. Um, yeah, so as you say, she said she's going to try and survive and she's going to hold on. Um, and, and yeah, it'll, we'll see what happens. You mentioned those guys who who might who would be the, uh, the logical replacements. Um, the thing about this, and, and to make the serious point about ICAC, apart from all the, the lulls that are there as well, um, is that this is one of the problems with ICAC. You know, like a lot of people on the left are like, yeah, we need an ICAC to, to weed out corruption, but it's kind of like she's had to go through all this, you know, acute embarrassment, um, and and it, and it's kind of like she's guilty until proven uh, until proven innocent rather than the other way, other way around. So she's taken this massive political hit already, and it might turn out that she's actually not... Um, uh, not guilty of anything. So that so this is one of the reasons why ICACs are a bad idea. I think we should make that point. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't, like Another one is, a lot of people wonder why can't we get good people to run for politics? I mean, yesterday afternoon was just number one reason. You saw Gladys Berejiklian, and the most powerful woman in New South Wales, uh, Premier of a state, giving a press conference and one of the questions was like, were you aware he was married or had they separated? And you've just got to like, I, I, you know, you're just sitting there watching the worst hour of this person's life in on national TV. That just sucks. Um, I, and I do want to highlight one single quote here, which is at one, like a few weeks on the show, I made Gladys, Gladys Berejiklian my hero just for the pure move of walking into a meeting that you weren't invited to going, I've never been so disappointed with you turning away and leaving. She goes, this is not a relationship I shared with anybody. This is not a relationship that deserved that status. She is cold when she wants to be. She can turn it on. Yeah, yeah. What, definitely one of the highlights of this whole episode was Gladys's burns. That one, um, 
yeah, that you just mentioned as well. Sherry Markson wrote in the Oz because they're talking about the phone taps where the guy is talking about his finances. Sherry Markson wrote, Berejiklian seems genuinely disinterested in many of the phone taps. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was pretty It was pretty funny to read all the burns that she sort of you know uh, said throughout this. Um, and also, yeah, yeah, your point about how... like. It's interesting how people do care about this stuff. Like a lot of people, you know, like I want to know what kind of morals my political leader has and if they cheat on their, you know, spouse or whatever and stuff like that. I, for one, could not care less about that stuff. I only care yeah. about the policies. I don't care about what people do in their spare time. There's been a lot of great political leaders that have been pretty rubbish in their spare time and a lot of um, a lot of political leaders who haven't been very good who have, you know, been genuinely good people in their spare time. So not something I care about, but the people in the electorate do, James. Yeah, on Sunday, if you asked me, do you know the ideal amount of about Gladys Berejiklian's private life, I would have told you yes. And then subsequently, every day, it's been closer to the word no. I yeah, I I know I now know more than I care to. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we should go on to the second biggest story of the week somehow, which <laughs> is Chris Eccles is the Secretary of Victoria's Department of Premier and Cabinet basically the biggest public servant here in Victoria, uh, announced his resignation. So, I don't, look, Victoria's been inundated with this story. So if you are out of this state, basically the idea is when it comes to the idea of who to, who decided to use private security guards for hotel quarantine, obviously everyone's saying it wasn't me, Dunno can't tell you. But there is a six-minute window on March 27 where... Graham Ashton, who was um, you know in charge of the police, went from thinking it was the police responsibility to private security guards because of a couple of text messages. He can't remember who he came in contact with, but obviously someone in that six-minute period gave him enough info that things changed remarkably. So Peter Credlin comes down to these presses last week. By the way, she turns up for two days and gets one of the biggest officers in Victoria to resign. So Peter Gredlin, like, finally started... Well, not finally, like, no one was demanding it, but she decided to go to the Daniel Andrews Daily press conference slash Chavez-esque appeals to the nation and ask a few questions. Uh, and it was centred around this six minutes and who contacted who. When, two days later... Because the idea was the, the inquiry can't ask people to hand over their phone records. They would have to offer them. So now the inquiry has asked for those phone records they didn't have the legal capability to do but now the public pressure was on them to ask for it phone records were handed over chris eccles most senior public servant in victoria found that he did contact graham ashton in this time again he says he didn't he says he, he says he has no memory of it but the phone records are there so he has had to resign now i want to point out one thing before i cut to you pete now chris eccles says that he forgot he spoke to graham ashton in that key six minute window now he phone records come out that he did contact him, but he still says he did not, would not have said to make the call to use private security. So how do you both not remember making a phone call, but then say with absolute certainty what that phone call was made up of? Well, yeah, I mean it can't be both of those at the same time. He, he either remembers the phone call, remembers what he says, or he doesn't remember the phone call. Um, so yeah, look, I mean he was obviously right to resign. His resignation letter was. You know, it was very much, I'm doing this for the good of the government. You know, I haven't actually done anything wrong. I'm just doing this so that people can focus on the pandemic and and, and what the public service is doing. It was a pretty, to me, it didn't, it didn't cover off the gross negligence of what's occurred. Um, and I think we shouldn't forget that Vicpole basically couldn't be stuffed doing this. That's why it happened. You know, we're talking, we're all focused on Daniel Andrews and, and who decided what, but in, re in reality, Vic Paul were like, yeah, we're not, we're not super keen on this. 
So uh, that's why it's happened. But it should be interesting. Um, as a result, you know, so the health minister's gone. This guy's gone. Rumours of Daniel Andrews' resignation swept through Melbourne yesterday. The Herald Sun published a piece saying that Labor MPs um, were starting to do the numbers or whatever it is they do. Uh, it seems to have eased off a little bit this morning, but I don't want to make any any uh, predictions. James, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, it's like rumours of Daniel Andrews' resignation coming is becoming like, I don't know, the right side of politics version of this will finally end Trump. Like, I don't know. I've heard they're doing the numbers about 40 different times. Now, I'm now I believe it when I say it, which could age terribly. It could be in the next couple of days. Who knows? But again, I'll believe it when I say it. As we talk about with Greg, like the power that Daniel Andrews has over the state Labor Party, there is very few people that are in position to roll him and very few positions in which people can even do the numbers uh, or talk to people. So I don't know. That's, that to me, that's a bit. I'll see. I'll believe it when I say it. Yeah, I look as people of this who listen to this podcast pretty regularly know. I'm sort of not a massive like political guy, like I'm, which is sounds odd, but I'm more into like the ideas and the philosophy and and all that stuff. I don't sort of pick a team so much and barrack for it. But I would be so happy if he resigned at a purely like visceral level, not like is this good for that? You know, Greg makes some good points later on about in terms of management of the pandemic and things like that. But just as terms of I you know, obviously never disliked a politician more and I would to quote someone we all know and love, get on the beers big time if Daniel Andrews was to resign. That's my only uh, comment on that. Well there we go. Can we have it on the official record that Peter Gregory, if he's happy, would like to drink. So I know there's been a whole <laughs> lot of discussion about whether or not that was true. Uh, but finally that we can put the rooms to bed. The other thing from Victoria I want to mention, so is this like idea that we were only going to ease up restrictions when we got to five cases per day average, which we're now not long, no longer going to hit. So uh, the timeline for businesses reopening has been pushed back. Apparently, we're still getting some social concessions later in the week, but we'll see what they are. Now, again, I will point out that at New South Wales records, like if New South Wales followed Victoria's model, you guys would all be under lockdown right now. So that's how bad it is. Then this other thing is, Brett Sutton's asked, is these five cases achievable? Because we've been bouncing around like about eight to 15 for a few weeks now. So we still can't get it down to five. And Brett Sutton, chief health officer, says, who knows? Sorry, like, but like, how do you have a plan and just say, can we achieve the plan? Yeah, who knows? Anyway, continue losing all your businesses, continue losing Dark Zone, continue being cut off from your family and friends. Um, because who knows? I'm disappointed no one asked him about Dark Side. Maybe they will today. But the, you you knew. You said you knew. You said, you know, this was an achievable roadmap. That, that, when you say who knows, you knew. So for them to turn around now and say, oh, actually, we don't know. It's like, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, as you were saying, you know, we have such a, we're doing like eight or 15 cases. I was having a discussion with a mate in like England last night, just on the old facey. And he was like, oh, you're in lockdown. I thought you didn't have any cases. And I'm like, yeah, we don't. Um, but yeah, that's no, a stubble label. Imagine if you had one of those tote bags with Brett Sutton on it. I'd be willing to buy one now as long as it has the quote, who knows underneath it, question mark. Um, There'll be a good, uh, like there's going to be a whole lot of memorabilia that 30 years from now. It's like, hey, remember when Victoria completely fell in love with leadership? Just the concept of someone being in charge. Do people, will people admit that they've got Brett Sutton tote bags? <laughs> I don't know. You- will that be something you sweep under the carpet? Uh, I reckon so, or you have it ironically. Uh, all right, so third story we want to discuss, IP, the IPA, we put out a big report last week. Uh, sorry, I've 
completely messed my Word document here up. All right. I could do it if you want. So, oh, please. All right. I've got it right in front of me here. So the number of Australians, we had a report this week, the number of Australians receiving unemployment payments remains unchanged even as lockdown measures are lifted. So all this talk that we can just snap our fingers and the economy will come back uh, is proving a little bit more difficult in practice. There are currently 1.45 million Australians receiving JobSeeker, double the pre-lockdown level, and less than 1% of the peak in May. Even in Western Australia, where lockdown measures were lifted uh, faster than any other state, the number of people receiving JobSeeker remains almost 65% higher than in March. In addition to that, 89% of the net jobs created since May are only part-time. Only 21% of all full-time jobs lost as a result of the lockdowns have been restored, um, while 76% of part-time jobs have been restored. So so there's a couple of key ideas here. Firstly, the idea that we can just click our fingers and the economy will come back just like it was uh, is, is, is not proving to be correct so far. Um, and what is also equally as worrying in addition to the economy not coming back is all the community bonds coming back, all the community connections we have, stuff like sporting clubs and families and all those things that we had before this, but we'll wait and see on that. Um, and in addition to this is the point I make every week is that at the moment we have this idea that the government can do stuff. They're making a lot of promises about things that they can do that they can't, you know, like, oh, mental health is a problem. We'll just, we'll have a package for that. Oh, the, you know, unemployment's a problem. We'll have a package for that. But, but a bit of extra money is not as good as having a job. Like more welfare is not as good as having a job. Hiring a few extra counsellors is not as good as being able to see your family. Uh, or see your friends or do the things that make you happy and make life worth living. And all the way through this, the government has said, we can fix any problem that comes up, but it's not true. And we're finding out it's not true. And ordinary punters out there are finding out it's not true and it's terrible. Couldn't say it better myself. The other key stat from uh, the report, which has the name of economic scars, how the lockdowns apparently disfigured the Australian economy, go to ipa.org.au if you want to read it. Third and final stat we'll read out. Between 14 March and 5 September, 19,700 new public servants were hired, while 607,000 private work sector workers have lost their job. Just that K-shaped recession we keep talking about. All right, final story before we get into heroes and villains. Uh, I don't know. I want to leave one... Uh, this one for you, Pete, because the idea of like lockdowns not being the most uh, awesome way of handling restriction, uh, handling coronavirus is something that is near and dear to your heart. And the World Health Organization made a pretty big claim this week. Well, yeah, Dr. David Nabarro, the World Health Organization special envoy, said uh, in an interview with The Spectator in the UK, we in the World Health Organization do not advocate lockdowns as the primary means of control of the virus. It's only the only time we believe a lockdown is justified is to buy you time to reorganize, regroup, rebalance your resources, protect your health workers who are exhausted. But by and large, we'd rather not do it. Now, the World Health Organization has changed its mind a lot during this pandemic, um, and we've given it a lot of um, criticism for that. And deserved. Um, and deserved criticism for that. So, you know, it's a bit rich of us sort of... It's a, to turn around now and go, oh, look at the World Health Organization. But this is the organization that people who justified the lockdown based it on. This is, if you want to talk about experts, these guys are in your pantheon of experts, the experts are the experts. And they're saying, you know, the, 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 the lockdown isn't the greatest way to deal with this. So any call to experts, to expert opinion as justifying these measures is now completely null and invalid because it's just... It's just not there anymore. Um, expert, act, the expert has come out and criticised this, um, 
and and now we've seen it again. We're going to talk about the Great Barrington Declaration a little bit later on, so I won't uh, spoil James's party there. But we talk about focused protection, where we look after vulnerable groups, uh, older people, people with existing health um, uh, health concerns, and that is it's not just a way of balancing the economy and the virus. It's literally better. It's literally better than the full lockdown because you can achieve herd immunity by allowing. Uh, young people to get it who are literally a thousand times less likely to die from getting COVID. So um, just another one. Every couple of weeks, I, I bring something about how the lockdowns aren't the, aren't the most effective way of dealing with this. And this is just another one of those. Well, you mentioned the Great Barrington Declaration, which is my hero of the week. So we'll go straight into that. The Whoa. Grunt the Pig Freedom Snort. Uh, and the Grunt the Pig Freedom Snort. This is the uh, snort we give to people that stand up for freedom around the world this week. So Great Barrington Declaration is this online survey of medical practitioners, medical professionals, and then just concerned citizens of the public. And you can sign up online. It's pretty hard to find. Google have done some pretty good work mm. on suppressing this petition but basically i'll read from it so it's coming from both the left and right and around the world we have devoted our careers to protecting people current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health the results to name a few include lower childhood vaccination rates worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes fewer cancer screenings and deteriorating mental health leading to greater excess mortality in years to come with a working class and younger members of society carrying the heaviest burden keeping students out of school is a grave injustice now before you just think well who are these medical professionals maybe they're just uh, random people. You've got Martin Kuldorf, who is the professor of medicine at Harvard. Sinetra Gupta, professor at Oxford University. Jay Bhattacharya, professor at Stanford University Medical School. So pretty big fishes, I would say. That's a lot of big job titles. Uh, if you do want to sign, I'm a signature. I'm one of the concerned citizens, which, you know, makes me feel a bit up and about. Uh, anyway, you can find it online if you work hard enough. 396,000 people have signed it from the concerned citizens. 8,800 medical professional, uh, sorry, medical and public health scientists and 22 2,600 medical practitioners. It's less than a week old, so that's a pretty big take-up. It is. It's really, really exciting stuff. Scott Hargrave said he found it on DuckDuckGo, so maybe use one of uh, Google's alternatives if you can't find it. Uh, just, I should mention very quickly, James, that the IPA um, has put forward its idea about what the Australian government should do um, in terms of this, and we called it medical capacity. It's based on random community testing, targeting lo localised outbreaks, protection of the elderly and vulnerable, uh, and continued international border control measures. So that is a report by Daniel Wild and Asher Judah on the IPA website. Check it out if Very good you point. want to know more. Uh, your hero, Pete. No more about that. My hero is the Nobel Committee. Now, the Nobel Committee is, a, is an organisation that has copped a lot of criticism from us over the years, James, but I'm not going to say they got this year right. I'm going to say they didn't get it wrong. Now, the... The Nobel Peace Prize was awarded last Friday night. And do you know the three favourites, the three favourites for this prize leading up to its award? I'm going to guess Jacinta Ardern. Jacinta, yep. Greta Thunberg. Correct. Jimmy Butler. <laughs> no. Nearly not that saved much. the world from another Los Angeles Lakers title. It was very close. <laughs> okay, well, that was a good choice. He wasn't up there, but the third choice was the World Health Organization. Uh, and so, you know, as, as we've just mentioned, they've made a lot of mistakes over the course of this pandemic. Um, it's been what a tough a roller coaster year, ride of the last 10 minutes been for Pete, going from praising <laughs> the World Health Organization to saying, nah. I didn't praise them. I just said, if you believe in the expert view, this is the expert view. Anyway, um, 
what I'm saying is it's been a tough year, James, and I really didn't need the Nobel Peace Prize to be awarded to one of those. I mean, Jacinda Ardern, as um, Oliver Hartwich said the other day on this podcast, Minister for Child Poverty. Child Poverty has actually increased during her time as Minister of Child Poverty. Greta Thunberg, it's like, really? And the World Health Organization, as, I, as we've stated, has chopped and changed all the way through this. Uh, so I was thinking, they were the three favorites, and I thought, if, God, if it's going to be one of those, you know. And fourth favorite was some real estate guy from New York um, who had done a lot more than Obama, by the way, who did get a Nobel Peace Prize. Anyway, they gave it to the World Food Program, which, I mean, I'm sure if I did a little bit digging, I'd find that they're a bit inefficient or something or they're crowding out local farmers or whatever. But they do say, and of course the UN's a bit dodgy in general, but they do say that uh, almost 100 million people in 88 countries last year have been assisted by the World Food Program. So good on the World Food Program and Nobel Peace Prize not giving it to Jacinda Ardern, Greta Thunberg, or the World Health Organization. Small mercies, James. Here are the way. My gut feel is, the, uh, you know, because obviously you've got to have a social distance ceremony and if you can't get a selfie with Greta Thunberg or Jacinda Ardern, then maybe save their recommendation, save their awarding for a year in which you can get that selfie. That's the problem. They're up there every year. Like, at one point, they're going to get it. All right, so <laughs> I just wanted to let that sink in, you know. Okay. <laughs> The fake the Extinction Rebellion fake nerdy run uh, award is for our villain of the week, Robert Tate Muskie. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. So that's a fake nerdy run. So anyone who's a villain of the week, um, we are now going to award you villain of the week. James, who have you got? Very annoyed the last week we found out in the show that saying tone deaf is problematic because this would, if we were to be able to say the words tone deaf, this would be in which it was used for. Because the Australian Labor Party on the weekend put out a social media tile congratulating Daniel Andrews on 100 press conferences in a row. <laughs> if there yeah. was one curve worth flattening, it was the constant hour-long ceremonies of Daniel Andrews being the greatest debater in... Australia like it is just debating club practice he just shoes off every question but anyway Labor Party were like how good's this <laughs> and and even the admission that like how good's this the problems from hotel quarantine were so bad that they warranted a hundred straight days of press conferences just to keep people informed about all the stuff they have to do that was an extraordinary oversight from the Australian Labor Party to put that out well done on a hundred press conferences for a pandemic that your government caused round of applause <laughs> yeah, everyone extraordinary Okay, well, my villain, James, is former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. He's called for a major government inquiry into tight ownership of the Australian media by none other than the owner of a lot of real estate, but especially a lot of real estate in the heads of the left-wing people of Australia, and that is Rupert Very Murdoch. good one, Pete. Write that Thank down. You. Someone write that down. That's one for Pete. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, James. Anyway, uh, so Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, uh, he wants a major inquiry into that. He secured 140,000 signatures uh, on a petition after just three days. He said, the truth is Murdoch has become a cancer, an arrogant cancer on our democracy. Now, Kevin Rudd, with all due respect, this is absolute crap. All right, I've sat in my house for six months. I've had my democracy taken away from me. I've had my rights taken away from me. And the whole time that's happened, the state broadcaster cheer-led on every move done by the government. Every move done by the government. And the only people who questioned it in the media, in those press conferences, were news-limited journalists. People like Rachel Baxendale, Peter Credlin in the last few days, Gabriella Power, a few others. They are the only ones who have gone into that press conferences and stood up for my democracy. If you want to talk about what a, a cancer on democracy, I have to go and pay money to the ABC every year 
to, to for them to cheerlead on the, the confiscation of my rights and to tell me how much they hate me. So don't if you want to talk about a cancer on democracy, let's talk about the ABC. Kevin Rudd, you are absolutely kidding yourself if you think this is the problem with the Australian media. Kevin Rudd is aware that like the vast, vast, vast majority of News Corp publications in Australia did support him in 2008. Oh, in, he, in 2007, I mean. Is that true? Yeah. Like, he's aware of that, right? Anyway, the I other part of this is, uh, unlike a lot of other federal governments around the world, there, there's no, like, requisite number of signatures a petition needs for it to be debated in Parliament, which leads me to think, is this just Kevin Rudd figuring out how many people still like him? I mean, he's a guy that de- definitely does need some external uh, support into do people still like me? So now he's got an actual number. He has struggled with you know, life after politics in terms of, you know, what's the word? Adapting to a quieter, a quieter yeah. professional life. All right. So, that yeah, is, maybe. That is it for the start of the show. Let's now go to Greg Sheridan and Bella. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show foreign editor at The Australian, Greg Sheridan. Greg, how are we going? Hey, James and Pete. Good. How are you? All right, Greg, I want to, uh, we've got a lot to cover today, but I first want to get your answers on today's big news. Now, this show is not coming out till Tuesday. We're now recording on a Monday, this interview, so it feels a bit weird considering the whole world might be different, or at least the country might be different in 24 hours' time. But from what we knew today with uh, Dan Andrews' top public servant resigning, the stuff that's coming out about Gladys Berejiklian at, the, at ICAC, should both resign? Should only one resign? Should none of them resign? What, what's your summation? Well, they're very different cases. Uh, I'm, uh, it's too early to say anything definitive about Gladys Berejiklian. The, uh, the bloke she's hooked up with certainly has some serious charges to answer. Um, it's not clear whether she does, and I'd keep an open mind about her. I think she's been a, a reasonable premier, and she's always conducted herself in a very reasonable manner. Uh, with Daniel Andrews, Um, I think he has overseen the most catastrophic policy failure in this country by any government since World War II. And by any normal measure, he certainly deserves to be run out of office. However, I wouldn't want him to resign at the moment because his cabinet is so unbelievably weak that it would actually end up being worse for Victoria if we had a a disruption at at the Premier's level. But if, if... the Victorian government doesn't lose in a massive landslide at the next election. There is a terrible crisis in state politics in Australia because if you if you have policy failures which produce, you know, uh, outcomes which mean hundreds of deaths, tens of billions of dollars of uh, lost economic activity, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars, and uh, a state in authoritarian uh, prison you know, I'm being metaphoric there, in lockdown uh, for months. Not much of a metaphor at this point. Well, if you do all that and you don't lose office, then politics is not functioning. Greg, I was interested in your comment then that it's the biggest public policy failure since the Second World War. A lot of people say it's the biggest public policy failure ever. Excuse my ignorance, but what would be the thing that you would say that was a bigger public policy failure just just for my interest really <laughs> uh, sure well i've given i'm oddly enough i'm glad to see that your mind goes down such obscure byways uh peter so does mine i've given the matter quite a bit of thought some people would argue uh committing to the vietnam war but i wouldn't argue that because i thought we were right to commit to the vietnam war but if you thought that was wrong you could regard that as a 
as a catastrophe and 500 Australians uh, uh, died in, in the Vietnam War. But I think the greatest public policy failure in Australian history might well be the complete failure to prepare for World War II and uh, the absolute lack of national preparedness of any kind uh, for World War II. Um, you'd have a few things to argue about uh, in World War I as well. Um, and in both wars, I think we listened a bit too much to, to the Brits. Took us a while to make our own decisions. But, you know, you've really got to go to matters of war, national life and death, the survival of the nation, before you come upon a public policy catastrophe as great as this. And uh, this is not as bad as that because the scale is not yet at that level. But this is on a scale... Um, I mean, worse things have happened to Australia. I mean, we had the Spanish flu 100 years ago and we had the Great Depression of the 1890s. But they haven't happened because of government failure. The Spanish flu was not primarily a result of government failure. And even the Great Depression of the 1890s was... Um, a bit harder to see all the mistakes that the government's made in retrospect. But so I'd, I'd say the 1930s um, uh, is the last. Uh, and in modern Australia, we've never seen a, a policy failure as as catastrophic as this, as monumental, as multidimensional. This is failure at every level. It's sort of one day Harvard Business School will teach this as how to how a seemingly competent government with a seemingly competent civil service can just get everything wrong across every dimension of discretion. And, the only, and as a result of getting every bit of sophisticated policy wrong, the only thing the Andrews government can do is go back a thousand years to medieval plague policy, a uh, complete lockdown, and then get to go back to sort of 19, uh, 1940s um, uh, authoritarianism, you know, a, a sort of a, a dream out of 1984 or something. Ha having said that, I am being a bit metaphoric because we do live in a democracy and we do have the process of law. And I'm not, Dan Andrews is not a dictator, but he's a very, leading a very, very, very badly failed government. So I've actually got um, Sky News on another one of my screens here, and Andrew Clinnell is now reporting that Gladys Berejiklian will not resign. So again, this might be out of date by the time people are listening to this episode, but that's the latest we're working off now. But what I want to ask you is, Gladys Berejiklian may or may not resign over not something that she did, but something that she was romantic, some someone that she was romantically involved with, and then her predecessor Mike Baird resigns over a bottle of wine that he didn't. Uh, you know, provide the proper uh, information about. Yet in Victoria, 800 people are now dead as a result of the failures of hotel quarantine and Daniel Andrews is still there. Now, I understand you might say, like, we still need his leadership because there's no one else. But I kind of think, one, for ministerial accountability, you should go. And then second, surely the Labor government at this point needs a blank slate because you're asking so many people to give up so many parts of their lives. And from our perspective, it's looking like, an absolute shambles at the top and we don't really trust them to be able to navigate even the next 48 hours, let alone the next 12 months. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of truth in what you say, James. It was Barry O'Farrell who resigned over the bottle of wine. Oh, my bad. Mike, Mike Baird resigned for no good reason. He tried to, he foolishly tried to outlaw greyhound racing. Very, I mean, Mike Baird's a terrific guy. I've got great admiration for him. It's a very, very dumb decision. And of course, no one in the New South Wales Liberal Party would have ever been to a dog's 
uh, meeting in their lives, you know. So they were just completely culturally unsympathetic to the people they were uh, they were riding roughshod over. Very dumb sort of new class decision. But um, certainly Barry O'Farrell should never have resigned over a bottle of wine. Nick Greiner resigned when ICAC found him corrupt and the finding was reversed in the courts. So as soon as it got to a proper court, it was reversed. But the sentiment of what you're saying is absolutely right. Andrews is accountable for a catastrophic policy failure. But I'm a, a bit of a Leninist at heart. And you know that Lenin said, <laughs> the, only question, the only thing that matters, the only question that matters is what is to be done. Now, partly Andrews has contrived a cabinet of pygmies and a Labor Party of pygmies. I mean, the Labor Party is suspended at the moment, even before COVID came in. They found that there was a bit of branch stacking. Well, what a shock, Louis, I'm astonished, gambling in a casino, a bit of branch stacking in the Labor Party. So Andrews and Albanese contrived to suspend the operations of the whole of the Labor Party. So Andrews isn't even constrained by the Labor Party. He's had a daily press conference for 100 days. Now, in New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian would often give the health minister the running of the press conference, or sometimes even an official. So it is good to update people on a day-by-day -day basis during the COVID period. But Andrews has run these sort of Fidel Castro, uh, Hugo Chavez-like uh, daily press conferences. But we are still a free society. So every now and again, he gets something he doesn't bargain for. You know, brilliant journalist from The Australian or Peter Credland from Sky or something go along to the press conference and ask him persistent questions about these phone calls and so forth. But he has made it so that nobody in the state government, apart from him, has any profile in the community. It's not even a matter of would they have the authority to be for their directions to be followed. Nobody's even ever heard of them. I'm a professional journalist. And I couldn't name you more than two or three state government ministers at the most. Um, I, I do think it is shocking that he's tried to limit parliament and that he's... Um, uh, his inclination has been to suspend or countermand the normal processes of accountability, which aren't working in state politics all over Australia. You know, we're having council elections at the moment. I voted today. I've never heard of any of the candidates. I don't know anything about them. And state politics is only a little bit better than council politics. I mean, democracy is not really functioning when, when nobody gets any information about uh, what's going on. I'm very critical of the ABC that it doesn't have a nightly state-based current affairs program. The 7.30 report used to be state-based in every capital city. Now, they don't do that sort of thing, you know, because they don't have to follow the hunt for profits, they tell us, so they can do whatever's good for the society. Well, this is one thing that they don't do. But I, I agree with your sentiment. Andrews must take responsibility for this and should resign in due course. But right now, this government, this state, this machinery of government, this bureaucracy is such a catastrophic mess that I wouldn't want to add another dimension of gross instability at the top. I mean, but other people might have a different view. I wouldn't strongly disagree with them. But my my own thinking would be, you know, perhaps he ought to resign in three months' time or something. I mean, get the crisis resolved and, um, and move along. But mind you, who on earth in the Labor Party would take over from him? I mean, Andrews, I'll say this. I honestly believe Andrew is a very intelligent person, a very capable person. So at least he's trying now to fix the mess that he created. He's not doing very well. But, um, you know, it would, it would be not that hard to get someone who was much 
much worse. So we actually got Greg on to talk about the US election, so we better move on to that. Uh, Greg, Donald Trump, he had COVID. He's back on uh, campaigning. He says he's not infectious. His doctors say he's not infectious. What is that? Does his uh, relatively quick recovery from COVID, is that good for his chances or does it not make any difference? How do you think that whole episode impacts the race? Well, I've been surprised at how clumsy Trump has been in this campaign. Now, there, he's at the moment, he's 9.5%. As we speak, the Real Clear Politics aggregation of the national polls has him 9.5% behind uh, Joe Biden, and he's about 4.5% behind in the battleground states. Now, um, he was about this far behind in the battleground states last time, and he came from behind and won. But two big things happened last time which won't happen this time. One, he had the debates against Hillary Clinton. And although she was considered to have won, he did see tremendous doubts about her. And then secondly, James Comey, the FBI, came out at the last minute and said Hillary misbehaved shockingly in the way she used her private emails to do sensitive secret government business when she was Secretary of State. He said he wasn't going to charge her with a criminal offence, but her behaviour was extremely bad. Now, and even then, at the end of all that, Trump won by the the breadth of a cigarette paper in those four four or five critical Midwest states. So 120 million people voted and 70,000 of them voted differently. He would have lost badly. So I am surprised that he made such a mess of the first debate that he... Uh, I mean, Joe Biden can barely speak coherently for 30 seconds but he never had to speak for more than seven seconds in that first debate because either Trump or the moderator, Chris Wallace, would jump in. And you could see Biden losing his train of thought after yeah. half a clause. But luckily, the moderator and Trump both jumped in and rescued him every time. So this campaign has been beautiful for Biden, who's been able to hide out in his basement and only give prepared statements. I thought COVID, uh, the COVID episode could possibly help Trump although it's the subject he doesn't want the election to be about. I am very surprised that he hasn't uh, really made the election about Biden's sort of far-left policies, his economic plans, trillions and trillions of dollars of new tax, tax rises, the Green New Deal, ending fracking, although Biden says now he won't end fracking, but he's opposed to fracking, uh, ending fossil fuels, ending... Um, making uh, energy uh, carbon neutral by 2035, all kinds of weird, crazy plans. And Trump has kept the discussion about himself and COVID. Now, Trump was smarter than me at the last election because I thought he was going to lose and he won. So he's a smarter guy than I am. And he may well be smarter than me this time. But I, I don't see that it's moving well for Trump uh, at the moment. There are a couple of analytical bases on which you can say maybe it's it's better than it looks for him because you never know who's going to vote in an American election. It's always a voter turnout proposition and his voters are more enthusiastic than Biden's voters. The Republicans have been registering more new voters and they're doing it in person, whereas the Democrats are trying to do it online because of uh, COVID restrictions. But uh, I don't know whether those are uh, meaningful indicators or they're straws in the wind. Yeah, just that first debate, like, I was blown away that the Trump playbook was to speak over Biden at every turn, and he absolutely passed up two huge moments when Biden refused to say whether he'd not impact the courts, and suddenly Trump's talking over him and doesn't let the moment sit. 
And then when Biden says he was in, in favor of the Green New Deal and then four seconds later says he wasn't, um, Trump just immediately pivots to arguing with Chris Wallace. So pretty weird stuff. Now, let's talk about the vice presidential debate because that's usually just uh, nothing. But I think this one's a pretty important one because on Trump's side of things, you've got the argument that some can make. I might lean it towards myself where the least electable part of Donald Trump is his personality. So being able to see Mike Pence would be kind of refreshing who can explain Trump's policies a bit better. better. And then as you say, Joe Biden might not be there for the full, full four years. So it's pretty important to get a look at Kamala Harris. So what were your takeaways from the vice presidential one? Well, I thought Pence was the clear winner. And the fact that CNN and uh, the other networks were kind of calling it a draw I think indicated that Pence was the clear winner. And there there are different metrics. You know, you can find focus groups that say Pence won and focus groups that say Harris won. But uh, I thought Pence was tremendously effective in a way that Trump wasn't in calling the Biden-Harris ticket out on some of the issues you mentioned and some other issues. For example, Biden apparently plans to stack the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court has had nine justices for 150 years. And um, if... Uh, Trump is successful in getting Amy Coney Barrett confirmed on the court. He will have appointed three Supreme Court justices. Nixon appointed four, apparently, in his first term. It just depends on who retires and who dies when a president's in office and whether the president has the numbers in the Senate to get his confirmations through. Now, Biden is thinking he may win, the Democrats may win the Senate and he'll be president. So he might appoint another three or four justices to ensure that there's a left liberal majority on the Supreme Court. This would be a disaster for an American institution. It would politicize the court more than anything which has happened up till now. And it would mean that every side would do the same thing. As soon as you got a Republican president also controlling the Senate, he'd put on four or six. And in the end, you'd have the Supreme Court in 20 years time giving verdicts by 98 to 94 or something like this, you know, just with mass stack. This is a truly shocking proposition by Biden. It All the people on the left who claim that they're shocked by Trump interfering with American institutions and departing from democratic norms ought to be outraged at this. Now, Biden wouldn't answer this question in the debate, but as you say, Trump just blustered on and went on to another subject and so on. Pence actually pinned this on Kamala Harris and she looked exceptionally weak. And again, even the CNN and MSNBC and so on commentators were acknowledging that she wouldn't answer this question and it's a pretty fundamental question. He also, I thought, um, uh, was effective in making the law and order argument and uh, in making the economic arguments. And uh, there's an enigma and a paradox about Trump. He broke through partly because of his sort of iconoclastic cultural style so it's unclear whether a more conventional politician would have broken through. But in Pence, you have a relatively conventional politician of high skill and significant intellectual firepower who could explain all the compelling reasons why people don't want to elect left liberal Democrats. And the Democratic Party is very substantially further to the left than it was four years ago or than it has been historically. That ought to be an easy argument for, for Republicans to make. And Pence, I thought, did very well. And in four years' time, whether Trump wins or Trump loses this time, you'd expect Pence to be one of the contenders for um, for the Republican nomination. And, and the so, final note on the vice presidential debate, 
Four years ago, I think it was watched by 38 million people. This time it was watched by just under 60 million people. So 60 million people watching a debate, that's a very significant uh, number of voters. That's an interesting point, Greg, because my next question was actually how important are the debates? We talk about Nixon's flop sweat 50 years ago and people still remember that. But are they that important and do they matter and do these ones matter? They can be important. And um, we thought this one would matter because Biden has been so much in captivity and in hiding. But of course, that gave Biden two tremendous advantages. One was he benefited from tremendously low expectations. So all he had to do was more or less stand up and not say something certifiably insane. And he was regarded as having done a good job. And the the other uh, um, benefit it gave him, as well as low expectations, was that Trump was just just rushing at him all the time at a million miles an hour. And that meant that he really didn't have to do anything. But historically, are they important? I think they are. People say they haven't affected results, but nobody really knows. I mean, I think they were very important last time. People felt that overall Hillary Clinton won the debates. I don't think that's unfair. I think that's probably true. But you can win the debate generally by a very mild margin, so to speak, across the country. And maybe with 30 million Californian voters, they all thought she did better than he did. But maybe there were 500,000 Midwest voters who just didn't like what they heard about Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton in that debate and either didn't vote for her and didn't vote at all or instead of voting for her, voted for Trump. So even if Trump lost the debate overall, when you consider that he won by 70,000 critical votes in the Midwest, uh, maybe that debate was pivotal. The other thing I think um, Ronald Reagan's debate with Jimmy Carter was quite powerful. Carter looked um, unreasonable and extreme in accusing Reagan of being an extremist. And Reagan's demeanor, which was so genial so uh, measured, so easy. Uh, you know, if you didn't like Ronald Reagan, you're not really a human being, you know. And um, I think that was important. You wouldn't say there was a gotcha knockout moment, although when Reagan said, you know, Carter accused him of being an extremist, and Reagan said something like, well, there you go again. That was an important moment. And then four years later, when Reagan had done poorly in the first debate and Mondale was insinuating that it, Reagan was too old for the job at 73, Reagan diffused it beautifully with that lovely line of humour. I will not, uh, you know, age should not figure in this debate. I will not make my opponents youth and inexperience an issue in this campaign. And Mondale was in his 50s and he looked older and less vigorous than Reagan in his 70s. You know, Reagan looked like a, a cowboy hero. So um, this is a slightly trivial way to talk about the debates because they ought to focus more on policy and substance. But I do think they are important. If you have 60, 70, 80, 90 million people watching a matter about politics for 90 minutes, I do think that is important. And even if you can't exactly say this debate swung that election, I think they are very important. So I think it's crackers for Trump to have given up the opportunity for the second debate. And actually, a virtual debate would have suited him because it would have forced him to obey by the rules and it would have exposed Biden to the difficulty of maintaining his line of thought for two minutes in a row. And it would have forced Trump to make the case in substance 
And there still would have been all the Trump style and so on for the sort of world championship wrestling fans who like that sort of stuff. So I think Trump, you know, made a big mistake in um, in skipping the second debate because it was going to be a virtual debate. Yeah, I think, like, debates to me are always kind of underrated because I'm still sort of of the belief that every single election's always been won by the person that the voters would rather have a drink with. So I think, like, just seeing the personality and seeing them on stage helps. Now, uh, popular refrain at the moment is that the US has never been more divided in its history. And while I think we're certainly in for some pretty ugly scenes in November, regardless of who wins the election... I always think it's hard to claim that on a country that has had four years of civil war. Is like that a view you share? Well, no, I think you're right, James. It's certainly not as divided as it was in the civil war. Uh, I mean, 650,000 American soldiers were killed in the civil war uh, when America basically decided it wasn't going to be a slave country. And um, the civil war was complicated, but at its heart was slavery. And, um, uh, the country was also tremendously divided in the era of the Vietnam War and the 60s and 70s, where there was a sort of a riot culture and a bombing culture. So even the hideous violence that we've seen in the last few months was probably worse in the late 60s and early 70s. There were a lot of, um, you know, political bombings across America and a lot of overtly violent groups, the Black Panthers, the Weather Underground, uh, uh, the Symbionese Liberation Army, I mean, groups that seem ridiculous now but didn't seem ridiculous then when they were killing people. Having said that, there is no doubt that America is very deeply polarised and there is one way in which the polarisation is a little worse than it has been in previous iterations, and that is it's very widespread. There's a very brilliant, important and uh, compelling book a few years ago called Coming Apart, by the sociologist Charles Murray. And he really traces sociologically the way America was sorting itself into op opposing ideological camps. And the way he, he diagnosed this or analyzed this was through postcodes or zip codes. So Americans increasingly were living cheek by jowl with people with whom they shared a broad cultural outlook. So, uh, you know, conservative, bourgeois, you know, church-going folks were living in suburbs dominated by that kind of person. Left liberal, uh, you know, limousine liberal, uh, rich liberal folks were living in suburbs dominated by that kind of person. People trapped in poverty ghettos were finding it impossible to get out of them. And there were black ghetto, uh, ghettos and Latino ghettos. And the worst of all was the, the white underclass who were the, the most underprivileged and you know, down at heel of all the people uh, in America. And uh, this now has a kind of a social basis, which is very widespread. The fact that uh, the media has sorted itself out into oppositional camps rather than being a broad public square where facts are more or less adjudicated and then people have different opinions I think this indicates that we're in for quite a long-term polarisation, whereas we're able to recover from the 60s and 70s. I mean, the Vietnam War finished, Reagan got in, revived the economy, and, um, and America was back to normal. And um, certainly the aftermath of the Civil War was, was horrible, the reconstruction in the South and so on. But America did commit itself to being a United States of America after that. 
it's hard to see after this election how the polarisation comes to an end. Although I suppose the story the left wants to tell us is that Biden will win, woke left liberalism will be triumphant, all of us around the world will take the knee to the new left orthodoxy, except for a few eccentrics like you and me, perhaps, and um, and the world will be united under the banner of, you know, Black Lives Matter and, um, and wokeness. But Ross Douthat, very fine columnist in the New York Times, argues in a column today that if liberalism takes power in America with that kind of arrogance and hubris, it will produce another reaction, perhaps much more formidable than the Trump reaction, but perhaps next time led by someone, you know, who has some of Trump's skills, but not some of his defects, hopefully. Greg, I've just got one more question from me because we we are running pretty long here, but who do you think will win? Well, Pete, you know, I'm tempted to just give you a fake static sign and then pretend the signal is blacked out uh, because... Uh, yeah, we'll come back in in November. <laughs> we'll come back in, put the right answer in, and then future generations will go. Like Greg Sheridan, he was onto it. Uh, good on you, because um, last time I got it quite wrong, uh, and I'll tell you why. I, I won't be too long-winded about this, but I'll tell you why I got it wrong. Last time there were so many polls that showed that Bill, Hillary Clinton was going to win by a couple of percent that I thought she would. And in fact, she did. She won the popular vote by about three million. Now, it has been the case in the past that you've won a candidate has won the popular vote and lost the Electoral College, but they've never won the popular vote by anything like three million and and lost the Electoral College. Now, this is part of America's polarisation, which is regional as well as social and ideological, that there are states which vote one way all the time, like California and New York, and there are other states which vote the other way all the time, like Arkansas and Texas and so on. And so you can rack up enormous margins in California and Texas or New York or, or what have you. And um, so the popular voters become untethered from the Electoral College vote. That's not undemocratic. That's just the way the American system operates. Now, right today, you'd have to say Biden is the favourite. But um, electron, elections are tremendously unpredictable. And uh, I'm going to really be absolutely pathetic and say that I honestly don't know who's going to win. I think Biden is the favourite on all the polls. He's justifiably the favourite. Trump showed us last time that the polls can be wrong. So uh, I, I think Biden is ahead right now. But as well as uh, being a wimp, Three weeks is quite a long time in politics and votes can shift very late. I mean, look at our own last election, Morrison and Shorten. The polls were very confident that Shorten was ahead. And it's not only clear that the polls were a little bit wrong, but that there was a shift at the last minute. I mean, you know, you could get a rainy day in America and, um, you know, 5% of Joe Biden's voters could decide not to vote. And that changes the election for you. So what a pathetic wimp out that is. Uh, and I really, you know, I used to like you guys, but I think that last question was an act of cruel and inhuman punishment. Uh, no, uh, it's important to bring back nuance. 
and just, uh, you know, everyone's opinion getting shouted. Now, you've been extremely generous with your time, but I did want to discuss one final thing, which is the conversation that you and uh, IPA campus coordinator Theodora Pantelich have had on the importance of Great Wakes of Literature. Now, that's going to all be available at the IPA's Generation Liberty Facebook page and uh, our other social channels as well. So make sure you're sticking around because it's a really good conversation with Greg and Theodora. Um, but what I want to ask you is, are you like between this, between five favorite books, we've had you on this podcast, we've talked books before, are you now really enjoying your position as the IPA's go-to external consultants on culture? <laughs> Look, everything I do with the IPA is so much fun. And, uh, you know, I just love every bit of association I have with the IPA. I am a bit worried, though, you know, as a, as a, um, I'm very optimistic as an Irish, a person of Irish descent, but as a, as a guilt-prone Catholic, I just find that I'm having so much fun that I figure if I ever get up to an examination before the pearly gates, St. Peter might say, so you had all this fun and you claim that was work? And uh, I, I haven't quite got my answer prepared for that yet, so hopefully that moment doesn't come around too soon. I have the same uh, problem with being guilty about having fun, but I don't believe in heaven, so there's not even the salvation. But anyway, Greg, thank you very much for joining us. Great to talk to you guys. Thanks so much. We now welcome on one of the very best friends of the Young IPA podcast. It's been a while. Glad to have her back. Dr. Bella Debrera, how are we going? Very well, thank you. It has been a while, and I'm pleased to be back. All right. So, Bella, you are one of the authors of the IPA's new book, Climate Change, The Facts 2020, which people can purchase. They just need to go to climatechangethefacts.org.au. Get yourself a copy today. It is selling uh, like gangbusters right now. So a lot of people enjoying it. Bella, one of the authors. So what does your chapter look at? Um, well, first of all, I'd just like to say 2020 has been a very odd year and um, it's been made even it? odder that I've actually got a chapter in Climate Change, The Facts. <laughs> as a non-scientist. Um, my chapter concerns the humanities fundings at uh, universities and how many of them talk about ch climate change. Um, and that's how I got into it, um, because I've been looking at the Australian Rec Research Council funding for a long time in, in terms of my own projects in history. And I realized that a lot of them I'd been reading talk about climate change. So we thought, well, well let's just have a look through them and see what kind of money is being spent and what kind of things they talk about. And that's how this chapter kind of came into being. So. Um, you know, the fact that a historian is actually contributing to climate change, the facts shows just how far-reaching climate change is, that it's just everywhere, it's in everything. Bella, what, uh, we know there's a lot of great writers in Climate Change, the Facts 2020, and a lot of fantastic chapters. What other chapters leapt out at you, and what other writers are you interested in having a look at? Um, well, the, the most obvious one was the first one that piqued my interest because it was about walruses and it was about polar bears, so it's sort of my level of understanding when it comes to science. And, and that, it, that it not only was an amazing story of how someone like David Attenborough conspired with uh, the media and conspired with Netflix and conspired with the camera crew to completely distort the facts, um, but then Susan Crockford was cancelled as a result of her research. I mean, so it's a com for me, it's interesting because it's a combination of what's going on at universities, um, just how um, deeply... Um, deeply attached people like Attenborough are to this climate change narrative and the, and the lengths that they'll go to. And I learned that walruses are really easily scared, which was a very fascinating, that they really, they really want to rush off cliffs really easily. And that I had no idea about walruses. That was a, such a strange fact. 
Like they're yeah, spooked if you watch really enough of those easily. documentaries, it looks like their favorite thing to do in the world. It really and is. It does seem fun, to be honest. The way they do it, like the flopping. I know this isn't the most serious point that will be made in climate change effects twenty twenty, but it does look like fun. It it's yes. Um and I um, look the story of the story of how they they sort of manipulated things. So they these poor, these walruses gathered at the on the cliff, fell into the sea, and then the polar bears chasing them thought, Wow, this is great, this is there's so much food here to eat, and then and they filmed that, and then and then portrayed it as some kind of um, you know climate change, uh, res- result of climate change. So I found that chapter really really interesting. Uh, a lot of them, um, and you know personally, I find more of what's going on in the universities and the the whole sort of policy thing a little bit more interesting than the the very very deep science, the very scientific chapter in the middle, which probably appeals to the scientists less more than it does the people who are not scientists. Well, it just goes to show that there's something in this book for everyone. So once again, climatechangewithfacts.org.au, get yourself a copy now. Now, Bella, you also had a big win the other week because, I don't know, longtime followers of the IPA or certainly, you know, fans of Bella's would have seen your work on having a look at some of the council, sorry, some of the arts projects that were getting taxpayer funding. And one of them was to do with, um, I don't know the polite way of saying this, but it was like performing self-insemination and it just seemed to be, I don't know. I Look, I know what I saw. Uh, Explain it to us, James. But anyway, <laughs> it's no longer receiving taxpayer funding, which is the key takeout for me. Now, Bella, this is a big win for you. Talk us through uh, what happened and why it's such a big win. It's a huge win. Um, I looked at the... Australia Council for the Arts, they've come up, they came up with a new fund in March called the Resilience Fund, which was offered just during the coronavirus period to artists who were struggling. Um, and um, I did my usual looking at the, the spreadsheets. It's, very, it's not very transparent at all, actually. All they have is a list of artists who have been funded and the amount and where they are in, in Australia. So you have to do quite a lot of digging in the background to see what's, what's being funded. And um, I chanced upon... I already knew about Casey Jenkins because actually I'd been talking to Peter Credlin about her um, about a month earlier. And <clears throat> we t- talked about the fact that she was using taxpayers' money to, to do this stuff and pass it off as art. And it was just um, shocking, really. <laughs> and it's, 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 I mean, you can get into the discussion about what's art and what isn't. And it clearly isn't art in any way whatsoever. And it, we really, really shouldn't be paying for it. Um, so we talked about it in Credlin, and then I went back and I had a look at the, the grants again, and then um, I found all the other artists that have been using taxpayers' money for things that are definitely, argue, not even arguably not art, not art, and shouldn't be funded by taxpayers. Um, and I got um, a, a, a wonderful write-up, I worked with Clarissa Bai in the Daily Telegraph, and it was the front cover, and that I did an op-ed to, to go with it. And then it went silent for a few days, and then... Um, in the last few days, it turns out that, that the Australia Council for the Arts has actually rescinded the money and taken the, way, taken the money away from Casey Jenkins and said, we don't want to be involved in this. It's ethically very wrong. We don't want to be involved in you bringing a new for- life, you know, life into this world with taxpayers' money. We, and they really distance themselves from it. So it's a huge win. Um, and of course, Casey Jenkins has come out and said she can't understand why this is happening. This is... This is, uh, this is this is an appalling um, overstretch. It's illegal for the Australia Council to now take the money away, and, and um, she's pretty upset about it. And, and incidentally, um, she's put together a very interesting Facebook um, post of the interview with Peter and I, and she's turned me into a potato, which is 
quite extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, that so. was actually going to be our next question. So for people that haven't seen it yet, and uh, I would assume that's like 99% of the people listening to us now, but it's literally like uh, a Charles cartoon of a potato with Bella's eyes and mouth mm. over it and just Bella's interview, but she's a potato. So... From my perspective, I watch a video like that and I go, why do you need to rely on government funding if you are such a talented artist mm. with such a keen wit as well? Exactly. Just a real like, uh, appreciation for the absurd. So maybe taxpayer funding is holding back your career. Well, look, she's obviously got too much time on her hands. And, um, and she, you know, the, the, what she's producing is, is not only not art, but it's just so, so offensive and it's so, it's, uh, we're basically paying for her to, to have a baby. Um, and there are couples in Australia who spend every penny <laughs> to try <laughs> to try for it to to, to to go through the programs and everything else. And she's just um, using taxpayers' money to to do it live on television, live on Facebook, or whatever it is. Um, and it's funny. I was just reading what she said in her statement. She said, "I'm not trying to conceive as artwork." And then she talks in the next sentence about how much her artwork is making an impact. So it's obviously doing the right thing. So is it artwork or is it not? So even she doesn't she doesn't know. Well, we'll try and get Saul to um, to turn you into potato in, uh, in post to show the people what we're talking about in this interview. Now, you've struck the uh, Casey Jenkins off your list. Any update, Bella, on who is next to get their funding cancelled? Uh, Look, about the I, I wish I, I wish I had those trees? answers. I wish I knew, um, but I would certainly be worried if I was some of the the artists now who've been exposed to. And I think the Australia Council of the Arts. From what I gather, <clears throat> received many, many complaints after that interview with with Peter Credlin and the article because people suddenly realised what was what was happening with their money and they they were forced to do something about it. So, so it's a huge win. Yeah, I think the person that put would just like put woolen scarves over tree trunks and stuff like that. I just can't imagine your overheads are that high that you need to rely on taxpayer funding. It just seems to be something you can do on your day off. But um, you need very bit. Uh, you need very big knitting needles for that. And True. they're probably quite expensive. And lots of wool. It's not just a couple of... Um, what are Whose side are you on, what Bella? They, sorry? Bella seems okay who's with a, this who's one. Whose side are you on? <laughs> you see, are you pro this one, are we? Is that I'm, you not pro. I'm not pro any of them. You. It's not quite as offensive as the other things, but it's, 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 look, I don't want to be paying for it. And the other thing is, what about getting a patron? In the olden days, artists never received any... The Renaissance artists never received any money from the government. They had to rely on the church. They had to rely on patrons. They had to, they, 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 it was a struggle. It was struggle town. And look at the stuff that they produced. It was incredible. We need to go back to that. Either we get a national interest test, so <clears throat> the things actually have to pass muster, or they just pay for it themselves. If she wants to artificially, artificially inseminate, she's welcome to do it. I don't want to see it, but she's welcome to do it with her own money. Also, sorry, one final point, now that I'm on a rant, she called it immaculate, which is so offensive to Catholics. It's just, it's, it's so offensive and nobody ever says anything. We're not allowed to. Well, yeah, immaculate's interesting. That's for sure. Sorry? <laughs> I was just going to say immaculate's an interesting way of uh, describing yeah. that. Yeah. That's interesting, though, that point you make about the economics of arts, because artists are always like, you know, we need government funding, otherwise we wouldn't survive. But the greatest art ever created was created in a time... Um, when obviously there wasn't government funding for art. So that's, I'm glad you raised that point. Now, can we talk about the Rob Guest endowment? Uh, we mm. have a lot of friends in the arts who are very mad at the recipients. What's the Name deal Name your here? friends in the arts, Pete. Well, <laughs> James, this is, I don't want to throw people under the bus, but I have friends in all segments of society. I'm a very well-connected connected individual. And they, these, these friends of mine were very unimpressed. <laughs> and so they should be. Because mm. this was this is this is a, a terrible story. Um, 
as it seems to be the custom these days, there's a lot of terrible stories when it comes to the arts and funding. Um, so the, the Rob Guest uh, Endowment Fund was a scholarship available to 30 uh, young people in the musical theatre. And somebody went through the list um, when it was published in August and decided that they were too white to receive the fund. That there, were, there was not enough diversity amongst the, short, the, the, the shortlisted, the, the, the nominees, to actually continue with, the, with this scholarship fund, which was $50,000, which would be helpful for it, you know, for they're starting their careers, it's a difficult business, they need all the money they can get, they've been working really hard to, for this scholarship. And um, the, the, the two things that are upsetting about this is as soon as this, this person pointed out the fact that it, there, there was not enough diversity in the, in the list, um, the Rob Guest co completely capitulated and said, all right, no, it's true, I'm, we're so sorry, you know, Mayor Cooper, Mayor Cooper, Mayor Maxima Cooper. Uh, my our fault completely. We're racist. We're going to pull the fund. And not only that, the the nominees also agreed that they were too white to, too white to receive the scholarship. That they weren't diverse enough. So this yeah. is how this is how crazy this gets when you have people actually um, depriving themselves of opportunities because they think that they're too white. This is the ultimate. Uh, guilt. This is the ultimate guilt, white guilt playing out. Um, that you know that it, it's just total madness. And of course, the person who put the list together has already had quite a um, successful career um, in Les Mis, in Le Matilda, um, in the West End, in Broadway. Uh, so you know he's happy to <laughs> he's happy to receive funding and he's happy to have this career, but he's not happy for other people to 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 receive this money. And I think it was, it's a terrible story. And it's it's again this this really pernicious identity politics that just doesn't seem to want to let go does it it's got this grip now this and it's really tightening its control and it's really it's everywhere um and it's destroying the arts yeah i could be wrong here but like the, the funding it's not getting re reviewed they're not coming back with an updated list like they've actually said okay they just say no it 2020 no prize so this is kind of the you know we talk about this like cult management of identity mm. politics but the idea that it's now a victory that absolutely no one gets funding like this is the everyone goes great this thing that a lot of people use to kickstart their career now no longer exists we win i mean this is weird it's very weird and it means that what's going to happen in 2021 they're going to put a list together with no white people on the list and then isn't that insulting for everyone else on the list because they're going to say well I, did i just make it because i'm not because i'm a minority um and then no one will no one will give them the credit. It's like the, the women um, on boards. No, if you got there because you're a woman or if you got there because of a quota, it's the same thing. And it's, it, it's, it's so damaging, isn't it, to, to people who deserve, who deserve the prize and who deserve the scholarship. And it's, um, it can only lead to resentment and, um, and the, the wrong people, arguably the wrong people getting, getting scholarship. Exactly right. One of the things that really, to me, strikes me as such a massive tragedy about this stuff is that point you mentioned about all the artists agreeing some of the most beautiful non-discriminatory lovely people i know are absolutely convinced that deep down no matter how hard they try they're racist or sexist or homophobic at like an unconscious level and there's nothing they can do about it and it's such a tragedy that so many people have been convinced of that idea now let's talk lockdown life you are a world famous bookworm and many of our listeners would have enjoyed you and greg sheridan nerding it up on five favorite books <laughs> nerding it up thank you yes best books over lockdown 2.0 or 7.0 or whatever we're up to what are the best books you've read recently um i've actually started re to read to kill a mockingbird again which sounds um very it's very you know very obvious book to read but it's really it just transports you so i'm enjoying it 
It's oh. instantly you're instantly back. What's, Can I say something controversial? Yeah, you don't think so. Most overrated book of all time. Do you know who else has that? Yeah, view? look, it might be overrated, but it's still a really lovely book. To, it's a lovely book to read. It's a lovely book to dip into. You get you get totally transformed. You're totally in the south. You know, you're totally whatever's going on around you in 2020 ceases to exist while you're reading that book. And if that's great, if great that's, message, fantastic message. Atticus Finch, great guy. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I just think. <laughs> It's not the greatest book that's ever been written. I know. I'm sorry. Like I gave three you, I different novels in this like one novel. They don't really speak to each other on the plot threads. It's a bit forgettable. I, for I probably, I probably gave you the wrong answer. No, Bella, you don't have to. Whatever you think is the right answer. Do you know who else doesn't like to kill a mockingbird? Yes, John Roskam, and I've forgotten. What? Yeah, John Roskam doesn't. So hopefully he doesn't listen to this. Oh, I didn't know that. So that's he, even better. <laughs> he thinks it's twee. Twee. Yeah, no, I'll pay Quote. that. I'll pay that. I for the I actually quite like To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, to go to go along with liking Imagine and Friends. What's that? Other, what's Friends? No, I don't really. I can't really. I was just hamming it up when I said Brooklyn I like Friends. Nine Nine. Brooklyn Nine Nine. Really funny. I show. like Brooklyn Nine Nine. I like yeah, Brooklyn yeah, Nine Nine as well. This is this so Pete and I. Pete and I have the same taste. We know. We know what's good. Yeah, I, Bella. I, we we're on the right track here. Yeah. Miller um, ice cream. Margarita. Margarita pizza. <laughs> All good stuff. That's still your most outrageous opinion. All right, Pete, your favourite book of lockdown? Uh, my favourite book of lockdown? Now, that's a good question. What am I reading at the moment? Oh, I'm reading Helen Pluckrose's book at the moment, but that doesn't count. Uh, the nope, book I was nope, reading... No, don't I think it don't does. spoil it. <laughs> don't. Okay. No, he knows why it doesn't count, but we can't say anything yet. <laughs> Can we not say anything? Anyway, um, well, I'll have to say Jane Eyre then because I read it oh, wow. during lockdown. All right, I'm going to do your that advice. thing where you ask other people for what they've been reading so that you can like wedge in what you've been <laughs> reading. But I need to thank uh, Bella for the five greatest books because one of the books, like my pick of the lockdown has been one of the five books on that. Leave it to Smith. Oh, you like to leave it to Smith. Oh, I'm really pleased. I mean, I love P.G. Woodhouse in general. I've never not done a Jeeves and Wooster though. So this one I was like, this is this is very, very good. I'm surprised because I actually didn't. I found it less funny than PG. I found it less funny than Jeeves and Worcester. I think they're both up there. Like Jeeves and Worcester, you got the dynamic, but man, leave it to Smith. That plot, ooh, very funny. Sorry, go out and read it. Would be my pick. All right, that is it. I've got no more questions, Pete. No, I've got lots of questions, but I think we can take them um, after the interview. Bella, do you have any questions for us? Uh, no, I don't. No. All right. Well, well, we'll call it there then. That's as good a place as any. Bella, thank you so much for coming back on. We've missed you terribly, so we'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you too, Greg and Bella. Please don't make it that face. I'm trying to do a podcast here. That is, uh, we'll now go through some stories that have made us laugh this week. We start off with the return of a segment I missed every day. And I think like last week with the Old Testament Pete, Maybe that's got the uh, the embers firing within you because we have a bloody outrage. It stirred something deep within me, James, and we realised, as you pointed out, we haven't had it's a bloody outrage for for yonks. So I've got one, a really good one. Bank Australia stepped up to the plate uh, and informed its customers they'll not be allowed to make any gaming transactions on their credit cards from December 1. That includes Sportsbet and the old Bricky's laptop. Uh, you pompous, arrogant, sanctimonious Gits. Had to pick a podcast-friendly word then, and I think that I did was... <laughs> A nation held its breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Could have got was sitting on the dump button. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, oh, the, the, the silly working class people don't know how to make decisions about their own money. We better step in and do it for them, you know. We need to make sure they spend their money. Imagine a bloody bank getting all high and mighty about, you know, we don't think you're spending your money correctly. We need to make sure you've got enough money so you can keep paying massive fees to us and we can keep, you know, giving our executives bonuses and stuff like that. So as people pointed out, does this mean that Bank Australia customers are going to be banned from going to Macca's and banned from going to Dan Murphy's and things like that? Don't tell people how to spend their money. I know it's like a private sector thing and they can do what they want, but this is not a, you know, the government shouldn't step in, but I'm just saying it's a bloody outrage. Yeah, I'm just glad it's only banks out there that are telling people what they can and can't do with their mm. own money. Oh, I just got an email from my uh, compulsory superannuation. I want to see what my statement is. But well, uh, we'll continue on anyway. Uh, a few stories out of the US this week, um, and they were usually pretty ridiculous. All right, so we spoke with Greg Sheridan about how the second debate was cancelled. Uh, I'll tell you who's pretty relieved about that. Steve Scully, who was going to be one of the moderators of it because he uh, got himself in a bit of hot water this week with the old thought it was a direct message, but I accidentally tweeted it out. He tweeted out, at Scaramucci, should I respond to Trump? Scaramucci being one of the biggest critics that Donald Trump has in the media these days, that is a debate moderator, <laughs> I don't know, basically colluding with Scaramucci to make sure they're on the same page as to what should happen. So that would have uh, been a bigger story had he been a moderator. He dodged a bullet with that second uh, debate getting called off. He certainly dodged a bullet. Now, he's claiming he was hacked, James. So the FBI yeah. is investigating to see whether or not he was in fact hacked. Now, a bit of digging found that this is not the first time old mate Steve Scully has uh, claimed to be hacked. Back in 2012, uh, he appeared apologetic about tweets concerning weight loss and said he was hacked. And then another tweet from March 2013, uh, he apologised for more posts that were sent by his Twitter uh, and claims he was hacked. So, you know, three times would be very unlucky for one person to get hacked, James. Whoever's out there continually hacking Steve Scully, can you make it a bit more interesting? Like, if yeah. you're going to hack, go all the way. Don't just say, Scaramucci, should I respond to Trump and talk about weight loss? I mean, that's just wasting an opportunity. It is wasting an opportunity. It could have been a lot worse. Now, you are a long-time... Let's not say fan, but I guess would admirer be fair to say you're an admirer of Scaramucci or a... Well, um, I'm glad you actually brought this up, Pete. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I think the obvious solution here is to cut out the middleman between Trump and Scaramucci and have Anthony Scaramucci moderate the next debate. I mean, I, if, the deba if the moderators are already, uh, you know, consulting Scaramucci on their own ways, then just have Scaramucci in there with the giant sunglasses. No he refuses to take them off. I think that would be a great move, and it sounds like he was already sort of controlling the debate anyway. But just for our listeners who aren't aware of Scaramucci's background, fill us in on that Pre one. Press secretary for six days before he was fired, something like that. <laughs> that's right. Just the that's candle right. that burns half as like the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long. So you know it happens to everyone. Uh, another story we got: um, celebrities just are physically incapable of learning their lesson. Uh, Mark Ruffalo, Sarah Silverman, Ugh. Amy Schumer, Chris Rock, Tiffany Haddish, Naomi Campbell, and somehow Borat combined for a public service announcement that was somehow even worse than Gal Gadot's. Imagine they got completely naked and film themselves telling people how to vote correctly. Pete, this, did that influence your voting in any way? Well, it didn't, it didn't influence me. Mark Ruffalo certainly didn't influence me, that's for sure. Uh, seeing him in the nude is not something I wanted to know uh, more about. Um, but this was, all, this was another one of like the stupid, the stupid commenters won't be able to understand how to vote properly. They were explaining this process, which allegedly might cost a thousand, no, a hundred thousand votes in Pennsylvania because you've got to put a slip in both envelopes or something like that. 
Uh, and once again, they've got, oh, well, the Commodores will be too dumb to work this out. We better, uh, we better make some porn because dumb people love porn. Uh, and that's what they've done. Um, it didn't change who I voted for, though. What are you? Will it change who you vote? Uh, no, but what I, what makes me laugh about all these is just reading the order in which the celebrities got read out. So this was like the lead from the article I read. So Mark Ruffalo, then Sarah Silverman, Amy Schumer, Chris Rock, Tiffany Addish, Naomi Campbell, and Borat, and then other celebrities were also in the video. But they go to this extent of just look at me, look at me, look at me, and no one looks at them because they're like they're just outshone by bigger celebrities. Like Josh Gad is in there, and you know I I already don't know what everyone sees in Josh Gad. I've never really found him funny, but. I feel sorry for him that he goes to this extent of uh, attention-seeking and no one gives him any attention. It is, you know, my heart weeps for that person. But the other point about this, James, where no one wants to talk about... Peter, I will send you $50 right now if you can name me one thing Josh Gad has been in. One thing he's been in? Yep. Uh, no, I being. One thing he's been in. You're following? Oh. Huge. Yeah. I think I know who it is. Um, what's that called? Shit's Creek. I have to look that up. I'm not saying it. That's just I don't think so. Unless he's like one of the. Unless he was in there for one episode, in which case I'll pay it. But he certainly wasn't one of the four leads. I just thought that's got a guy in it. Maybe it's him. Anyway, but the thing I wanted to say, James, was this was yet another, and maybe we should replace the villain of the week because this was a fake nerdy run. The, you couldn't tell they were in the nerdy. It just showed their upper half. I don't know. You nerd. You could have undies on. So not really serious. And the other thing is. Um, why hasn't Borat been cancelled yet? Because uh, Borat was in this. And it's, yeah. How has he survived? Winston Churchill didn't survive. How does Borat survive? Because he's on their side. There you go. That would be it. Uh, all right, last story we've got here. This is where US politics reporting is at right now. CBS News quoted the spokesperson for the Taliban saying that they hoped Donald Trump would win the election and now the Taliban has come out and says we do not endorse Donald Trump. That's where we were at. I Every week there's something, this is very 2020 and this is right up there with the best of them. The Taliban first endorsing Donald Trump but then walking back that endorsement yeah. uh, and saying that they didn't endorse Donald Trump. To be fair, going through these tweets, they didn't actually endorse him. They just sort of said that, you know... Um, when we heard about his health, we were worried for his health and hope he's going to get better. So that that was the spokesman, Zabi Hula Mujahid. Now, imagine stuffing up at work when the boss is your boss is the Taliban. Like, he's not had a good week. No. I'm just <laughs> sick of cancel culture. Like, the amount of people getting cancelled, the amount of people, like, having to wind back their shy Tory positions. We've come too far. Exactly right, James. Even the Taliban can't say what they want anymore now uh i should mention james just before we go we have got a massive generation liberty event this friday generation liberty is debating the socialist capitalism versus socialism which is better the two capitalism uh, don't that's the thing i feel stick around for the debate i feel really sorry but yeah don't make sure you still see the debate but i do feel sorry for the socialists because the you know weight of history is against them two of our campus coordinators luca and pumica will be debating for generation liberty uh, it's on Friday. All the details are on Generation Liberty Facebook and Generation Liberty Instagram and on Generation Liberty website. So check it out. Obviously, it's a Zoom event. Um, yeah, check it out. Yeah, can't wait for that one. All right, that is it for the show this week. Thank you to Greg Sheridan and Dr. Bella D. Abrera. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. Available wherever people get their podcasts. Make sure you're telling your friends and family about it. And if you are listening through Apple Podcasts, make sure you're leaving us that review at the end and maybe give us a star rating of what you decide. 
Um, what else we got? So we got Looking Forward comes out every week. Make sure you subscribe to that as well. Viral Banter comes out every fortnight. Some really great discussions about what's happening uh, with all of our campus coordinators, what's happening with young people around the country. Um, yeah, uh, we five favorite books. We had Greg Sheridan and Ann Bella on this show. If you enjoyed those conversations, make sure you're listening to them talk it up on five favorite books. And then go back in the vault. We've got Australia's Future with Tony Abbott and John Roskam. We've got the Great Books of Literature podcast with John Roskam and Andrew Bolt. whole bunch of stuff out there on the IPA's Growing Podcast Network. So we'll see you guys next week. See you later.